This is Timothy Gordon. Spring is nearly here, and accordingly, we're opening up two new sections of classes for the spring, Church History and Rules for Retrogrades. Church History is a repeat course from the fall. It was so successful that many people could not get in and want to in the spring. Rules for Retrogrades is a new course based on my book with my brother, Community Organizing from the Right. Go to timothyjgordon.com for information. Also at timothyjgordon.com, a pre-recorded Catholic Republic course on sale. We are live with Timothy Gordon. Um, for the few people who may not know who he is, he is the author of Catholic Republic, Why America Will Perish Without Rome. Great read, highly recommend it. And uh, even a better read. Rules for retrogrades. When I read this, I got so excited. I said, Timothy, I want to get this in the hands of every congressional candidate uh, running for office on our side. And um, unfortunately, I had to work, so I wasn't able to do it. I went to a few uh, campaign offices. They loved it, and they said they would pass the word out, but I never did get to, to do that. I apologize that I wasn't able to accomplish that. But um, I'm well, sure, Timothy... Time, yeah, thank. I, I no, you were you were giving it the the real college try, and I appreciated that. No problem, man. It's a great book. I, you know, you've got a vintage Milo copy. Milo. Oh, copy, that's right. Books copy of that's Catholic awesome. Republic. That's a collector's item, my my guy. So wow. Well, you know, I have a um, the CEO of uh, Catholic Charities Orlando was one of my uh, subscribers, and uh, long story short, we got to know each other. And he actually uh, let me borrow these. So I guess I'm if he's watching, I'll get them back to you. But I really like them. I'll have to buy a copy myself. But I'll send you one. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So the last time we spoke, uh, it was mainly about Black Lives Matter and you getting fired. And uh, one of my uh, viewers had asked you a theological question. I think if I recall, it was about baptism. And you really gave an in-depth answer. And I really appreciated that. So tonight, uh, I asked you to come back because uh, I have a few questions of my own I'd like to get your take on. And my subscribers have, have emailed me and commented some questions. So hopefully we'll get to all of them. And um, anybody watching live, if you got a question, uh, my son Nick's going to read them. Uh, if he sees a good one, we'll, uh, we'll call it out. But before I ask the first question and before I ask Tim what he's been up to, because I'm sure he's been up to a lot, this, this guy uh, is always getting something done. Uh, I just have a short story I want to share that uh, I think is appropriate for uh, what's going on here. So this may sound funny, but when I was a teenager growing up, one of the things uh, my friends and I liked to do was drive stolen cars around town and get in trouble. And <laughs> one particular night, we realized we were driving a stolen car that belonged to a cop. So in the part of Jersey I grew up with, stealing from a cop was as dangerous as stealing from the mafia. But we didn't know it at the time. We didn't know we had a cop's car until cop came behind us and chased us. Uh, you know, he put the lights on, but we floored it. I made a turn, like a quick right turn. I didn't know how to drive. I was like 15, 14 or 15. Did not know how to drive. You know, it's not like farm boys, you know, they're shifting gears coming out of the womb. You know, you don't learn how to drive till you're 17 in the city. So I, I really didn't know how to drive. So I did like 85 around a turn. And back then they had these customized uh, conversion bands. I just smashed right into it. So me and my friend got out, we ran, we got away. Long story short, uh, the next day, I went to a, a different friend of mine's pizzeria. It was an Italian kid. He came over from Sicily. And uh, he's like, he had a fat lip. 
And uh, he's like, dude, the cops uh, picked me up last night. They thought it, thought I was you because I have, you know, both have leather jackets. And I said, oh, they gave you the fat lip. He goes, no, my dad did. <laughs> and uh, so he, he goes, yeah, he had this strict Italian Sicilian dad. Like my grandfather would do stuff like that. You know, these Italians, that's, you know, back then it probably sounds violent to kids today. But back then, that's how you were disciplined. So um, long story short, he says, no, my dad comes, you know, I call my dad, comes down to the police station and uh, he just punches me in the mouth in front of all the cops. And the cops like, yo, sir, sir, he, your son's innocent. We just brought him down to ask him questions. Eyewitnesses said it was absolutely not him. So his father's like, I don't care. I teach my son to respect the police. I teach my son to work hard. We, we, we don't do this. He should be at the pizzeria working. So um, he said, so, so my dad thinks it's you. So you better, you know, you better get out of here before he gets here. So sure enough, his dad comes out. He goes, are you, are you a bad boy? You, you go, you go. I don't want you with my son. And he tells his son, you don't hang with the dad, a bad boy. You don't hang with that, a bad boy. So that was, I don't know, 40 years ago. And uh, since then, I, you know, I've been following Jesus for the past 35, 36 years. You know, the first 30 as an evangelical, the last five or six as a Catholic. And I've been trying real hard to be a good boy. And by the grace of God, do what's right and follow Jesus. But according to YouTube, I'm a bad boy and YouTube demonetized me. Now, when my friend John was told by his dad to stay away from me because I was a bad boy, he still hung out with me because he was a bad boy, too. <laughs> and I'm, I hear YouTube. I picture YouTube trying to be like my father or like this Italian dad. And he's telling Timothy Gordon, Timothy, don't hang with the blue collar. He's a bad boy. <laughs> and Timothy Gordon comes on my show anyway, even though I'm demonetized. Because guess what? Timothy Gordon's a bad boy, too. <laughs> <laughs> you, neither of us are instilling confidence. I was going to tell you. <laughs> I know your buddy's name, but his dad is somewhere uh, maybe watching your channel, maybe not, thinking uh, I, I ought not to be going on your channel. But guess what? You shouldn't be coming on mine if you ask. I know. That's what I was thinking. Out of all the people, I was thinking the same thing. And all the people, if YouTube's watching me, I probably shouldn't go on Timothy Gordon's channel. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, just just wait. Just wait a couple months until my third book comes out. It's, it's uh, rather hotly anticipated on No Christian Feminism, which the books that print we still can't decide with the publisher what to call it we've been calling it no christian feminism for two years everyone's waiting for it and uh we're, they're not sure they want to go with that name but 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 god bless them whatever they pick is is good enough hopefully it'll be close to that nevertheless the point is that thing is going to be nuclear I, and i'm not i'm not i mean like uh, Terry Gress, a lot of people out there know her book. Uh, what is it? The Anti-Mary Exposed. Yeah. Is that it? Mm -hmm. That thing. I mean, she's nice. She's nice about feminism. She doesn't even attack first wave feminism. She really just goes after second wave feminism. Okay. You no, know, good for her. But but it's it's um yeah it's that's standard fair stuff. We scald feminism. I mean, seven hundred citations in this book. And let me tell you, Rob. Um, neither of us should be going on each other's channel if we care about that. <laughs> That thing is going to be, you know, Facebook is in the face. It's 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 over, man. It's over. So just uh, I'll be praying for you. Never hang out with a good boy again. I can't wait. I can't wait to get that one. And uh, I heard through the grapevine you're working on a PhD. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I resumed work on the PhD just because I'm. That's uh, awesome. 
You know, I don't know if my view, I don't know if my viewers know this, but when I was first married, I got a PhD. I was poor, hungry, and desperate for years. <laughs> no, I have no. I, in all honesty, uh, I had a high school. I went into the Navy, and, and uh, I never went to college. But I do, uh, I do highly esteem education. Uh, one of my sons a lawyer. I have two sons in uh, graduate school. I have a daughter in undergraduate school, and I have another sale, another son who's smart enough to go to any school he wanted, but uh, chose to be a killer salesman. He uh, sells timeshares, and he probably makes more money than all of them. To be honest, but. Uh, but no, that's awesome, and that's why we got you on here. And I'm debating if I if I should call this blue collar talks to a scholar or bad boys for Jesus. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, if people want to comment, what I should call this, uh, we'll take a look at it. But um, but I do I'm have like other scholars. What's I, that? I'm not like other scholars. I'm I just, in full full disclosure. I'm even finding that being back in the doctoral program. I, I mean, it's it's cool. You know, I like I like. I like the deep studies. I like to do a dissertation on, on things. It reminds me of what I was working on before my children was born, after I was married, but before my children were born. But yeah, a little, little, little um, mixture right? of both your titles. Eh? Okay. So. Well, that's awesome. So, yeah. so my first question, uh, a viewer, a uh, subscriber had asked me, but I was, I was like, wow, that's a good question because I kind of thought about this too. So as Catholics, we believe in baptismal regeneration. The Bible teaches uh, baptism now saves us. Um, but when I was in the Navy, and I, I told you, you know, how bad I was, you know, I, that wasn't even the worst thing I did was steal cars. But I was bad, and um, I cried out to Jesus, and he changed my heart, and um my subscriber said he was a he was a heroin addict, crackhead. He was like, and God delivered him from all that. And my, the only answer that I could give him was, it's the grace of God. But I think we're both looking for more for a deeper theological answer. How does God change someone if we weren't baptized? You know, we didn't receive our baptismal regeneration. You know what I'm saying? Like a, like an evangelical saying, well, I wasn't even baptized and God changed me. H how do we respond to that? And, the, and other than just saying, well, it's the grace of God. That almost sounds like cliche, you know? Yeah. I mean, so th there are two ways to go about this. One is the, the theological answer, uh, sacramental theological answer. And the other one is the uh, philosophical answer, the metaphysics of, uh, I guess, baptismal re regeneration. I can't really give you the first because I'm not a trained theologian, but I'm a trained philosopher. And I can tell you that human beings are a, a corporeal substance of a rational nature, meaning we are the one, the one substance that is corporeal, that has a body that's comprised of a, a, a form and a matter. Uh, you know, form is the principle of intelligibility in a thing. The matter is the principle of potency, what, what we're made of, as we say. Angels are pure, pure forms. Okay. We're not like the angel. And then they're intellectual by nature. We're the only, and they're incorporeal. We're, we're corporeal or bodily. We're the only bodily intellectual things, which is why our souls outlast our bodies. So there's something happening with the, you know, whether you reduce it theologically to something called obediential potency or whether it's a kind of, a kind of actual regeneration what, what's really important, I think, in your question is something insinuated by the answer that we are, we are a, 
a corporeal substance of rational nature, the one thing that's made of matter and form that whose form outlives its matter, survives its matter at death. And that's our soul um, until the resurrection of the body at the general judgment. We, uh, we are, we will be pure souls between death and resurrection between basically our particular judgment and our general judgment is something I've been studying in school. We're, we're pure, pure form, pure substance, like the angels, except the angels are a lot. They're just, they're a different species from us. And actually they're actually, they're all individually a different species from one another. We can be changed by the sacramental action, by the efficacious sacramental action of the seven sacraments, but particularly by baptism in the Eucharist. Something that's important that I'd be remiss if I didn't speak to in answering that question is an insinuation of the question and an insinuation of the answer. And that insinuation goes like this, essentially, what happened at the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Gethsemane you know, Protestants give a drastically different answer. So I know, I know, Rob, you were you were a, a Protestant when you first came to Jesus, and and then you you went deeper into the Christian faith by getting into the sacraments. Protestants believe essentially something different happened at the fall than what we Catholics believed happened at the fall. You know, original sin in the garden, and it's a distinction not of kind, but a distinction of degree, meaning. We went from being essentially not, no, not in heaven in Eden, but having wills and intellects, the two rational parts of our soul that make us you know, rational, that make our souls outlive our bodies, uh, will and intellect, something the animal soul and the plant soul lack is will and intellect. We went from having essentially, if you think about it like a gas gauge, right? Full, empty a will that is mostly enlightened, say three quarters of a tank, seven eighths of a tank, something like that. And an intellect that, that is um, intellect that's enlightened and will that is mainly automatically pointed at the good, easy to pick up good habits for Adam and Eve before the fall in the garden. It's hard for us to pick up good habits. I'll explain why in a second. Uh, our wills are more naturally disposed to vice than virtue, but that's not how the will of Adam and Eve were before they fell. And that's not how their intellect was. It was easy to learn hard things for, for Adam and Eve. At the, so they went from, think about it, three quarters, seven eighths of a tank on both will and intellect, oriented at truth and the good, okay. uh, respectively, intellect and will. At the fall, we Catholics believe that the will and the intellect of man, now, uh, you know, because of this, this greatest catastrophe ever, this you catastrophe of the fall of Adam and Eve, that the gas tank basically got thrown from three quarters, seven eighths full to, I don't know, one sixteenth full. And we call that state concupiscence. We're naturally concupiscent. It's hard to get a good habit, easy to get a bad habit, easy to get a wrong answer, hard to give a good, correct answer. Our intellects and our wills are not anymore so easily disposed toward the, the, the two, uh, you know, natural ends of the will and the intellect, respectively, the good and the true. Okay. So that's what we believe as Catholics happened. And therefore baptism plays a role in, there's an, a supernatural natural overlap in reorienting us supernaturally at natural ends 
the ends of the intellect and the will, the end of knowing God and loving God and serving God, you know, intellect and will. So there's, there's natural, supernatural overlap there, like there is with everything in Catholicism. But the Protestants, they don't believe this fundamentally, and you don't hear it often enough. They believe what happened at the fall of Adam and Eve is that the gas gauge got thrown instantaneously from three quarters of a tank or seven eighths of a tank all the way to empty. And we are, it is hopelessly empty. And therefore, um, you know, the, the, the will is nothing but total depravity. depraved. Yeah, total depravity. And the intellect is totally unable to really know anything in a real epistemic and final sense. That's what I used to believe. Yeah. So that's, that accounts for all, pretty much all of the different theological differences which follow from there. And, uh, and it also accounts for a different view of what baptism does efficaciously, mainly by a distinction of degree, whereas we can account for the way the interaction of the supernatural and the natural. There's a supernatural kind of blood, blood sacrifice, if you will, the last blood sacrifice of the Old Testament Jewish era was Christ himself. I always tell my students, through self-sacrifice, Jesus changed Old Testament, Old Testament sacrifice into New Testament sacrament. And, and the, the Protestants just don't understand that interaction between the supernatural and the natural. Through a supernatural sacrament and the supernatural uh, sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the natural capacities of the separated human soul, meaning the will and the intellect, naturally come back into play a little bit, more than zero or total empty. The Protestants don't get that and will have a hard time getting that until they convert back to the full faith like you did. Good answer. Very good answer. Thanks. Yeah, now, um, I had a uh, question today from a woman. Um, she wants to know how, how would you explain uh, Revelations 12, you know, I guess verses 1 through 6 when it talks about uh, the woman and as a Protestant for 30 years, I didn't see the woman being married. Somehow it escaped me. I thought it was the church or Israel, whatever interpretation was popular at that time, you know, whatever book was popular. I really wasn't too focused on uh, end times like a lot of evangelicals are. Um, but she wanted to know, how would you explain that uh, to a Protestant? And, and I just actually just had that where someone said, show me in, you know, because I did a video, Mary, the Queen of the Universe. And someone said, oh, show me in the Bible where it says Mary is the Queen of the Universe. And I said, Revelations chapter 12. And to me, it's obvious. But to them, like, well, it doesn't say that. <laughs> so how would you explain that? Yeah, thanks. I mean, there's a couple different ways. The best way <laughs> to explain the Christian Bible, with it, which is a Catholic document, right, canonized by the church in the 360s, 370s, 380s, is um, to read it. I mean, that's that's how exegesis works. Uh, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky, the fallen angels, flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. 
The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. So, I mean, there's, there's just, thank you. Um, there's strong exege exegetical evidence just if you read the passage blind in scripture. And um, unfortunately, you know, Protestants are, God bless them. I, I mean, a good portion of my friends, they're just too often flying blind, even if they didn't know that the scripture is informed by 325 years of tradition that separates, you know, the, the canonization, um, canon selection process of the Bible, which the church, the church canonized the Bible. And um, on tradition. Right, based on tradition. So, I mean, this is this is the way I tell people. It's it's really basic. The the tradition is what tells us, fills in the blanks about Mary, purgatory, the saints, you know, the DDK things. Things that the Protestants are sort of, if I can use a, a term, I don't mean so mean, but sounds harsh. The brainwashed into thinking, it's just illogical. I don't I don't mean irrational. I mean illogical, which is the difference. There's even a problem not just with the logic, but with the logistics. Let me give you an example. Sure. You roll up to, um, let's say you're, you're, you're on the street and you happen to be witnessing, you're walking to work, you witness a bad car accident and um, the, both parties are okay. They get out and they, they ask you, hey, would, would you please, would you please uh, stick around until the cops get here? You saw exactly what happened and you know neither of us. So you're the perfect witness. And, and let's say you saw all the details, right? You, Rob, I guess, <laughs> your new name is Tradition with a capital T. Okay. Probably. But you have to get to work and, um, you, you know, you're like, well, I'll stay as long as I can, but I, I, I can't be late to work. Another person, person B rolls up person B's name happens to be scripture. And you're like, Hey, look, you're also, you also don't know either of these parties making you a perfect third party account too. And you are, I'm going to tell you word for word what happened. Right. And so it will be as good an account as my, of my, as mine is. And, you know, I can pass it on to you, even though you didn't witness the, the, you know, the unfolding of the, the tale of woe of this car accident. I did. I will tell it to you. And therefore you will be able to pass it on to the cop because let's pretend that our new friend person B or scripture is not a very good name. However, a lovely thing it is. <laughs> it, uh, he'll be able to tell the cops. Okay. So when the cops get there, I'm long gone. I had to go to work. The less I'd be fired. He passes the story onto the cops. Bada bing, bada boom, baby boop. He's, he, he tells the story and it's a perfect story. And the cops are satisfied. Chain of evidence is good. And um, the two party justice is dispensed for the two parties. Why? If we accept his account, scripture's account, person B, it's only because my account was perfect first. Like it's a Thomistic principle, right? You can't give what you don't have. So he can't give a, um, an inerrant account scripture given that he was separated from the events by some amount of time. Let's call it 380 seconds later, right? He rolled up 380 seconds later. Scripture, sola scriptura, the Protestant principle does not work because the Bible was canonized in like 380 AD. So you see what I did there? He, I mean, it would be one thing to, to toy with this notion, this Protestant notion of sola scriptura, 
getting rid of the other two pegs of the stool, script, you know, tradition and magisterium, um, which, which before there was a Bible, there was just tradition. Protestants believe in an inerrant scripture, the account by this third party, this guy, scripture, who rolled up. We believe in an inerrant scripture, but they can't say how or why they justify the belief that scripture is inerrant. We can, right? I am tradition in this story. Or you, I think I said you are actually. You're yeah, tradition. tradition. <laughs> yeah, Rob is tradition. You rolled up, you saw the whole thing. Therefore, you can account, you can cover those 380 seconds or years. And it's just that simple. I mean, I hear all this fancy Protestant Catholic uh, apologetics, you know, it's all silly. This is the most direct, logistical and logical uh, sine qua non for the argument. They, all 39,000 types of Protestants are built on sola scriptura. And guess what? It would be a little more difficult to argue against if the Bible were canonized, you know, when the Didache was written or, or when a lot of the books of the Bible were written. What, what, people, what Protestants refuse to accept is that inerrancy of Scripture requires infallibility of tradition. And yes, I know a lot of those books from the New Testament in the Muratonian canon were written right after Jesus was gone. But guess what? In the process of editing and publishing, in order for... For, for the publisher or editor to make, to render a decision, this gospel is gospel. It's absolutely true. This, go, you know, gospel of St. John, this is, this is inerrant. Gospel of St. Thomas, Doubting Thomas, well, this isn't. Gospel of St. James, this isn't. To render that inerrant determination, you require magisterium and tradition to be infallible. You can't get to inerrant scripture with, without infallible tradition and magisterium. You might be able to say you could do it as part of the sort of, you know, miracle, uh, apostolic miracle that Jesus gave to the, the apostles if it was done in the apostolic era. But the editing and the publication of the Bible, the canonization, the canon selection process happened Almost 400 years later. Get out of town. It's a done deal. It's a dead letter. Amen. If scripture is inerrant, then tradition has to be infallible. There's no other way. Hit them with my auto example. Um, people. Awesome. I like it. Great analogy. Yeah, thanks. Great analogy. Now, I was a Bible alone Christian for 30 years. And when I heard examples like you just gave, like when I thought about when I learned about the councils where they canonized the scripture, I was like, wow, that was hundreds of years after Christ. And it all started rolling and making sense. But I still have to filter everything through my 30 years of Bible alone. So when I look at a clear scripture uh, and I, for a doctrine, sometimes I'm like, I don't understand why someone in the church would be against this. And I'm going to give you an example. And I think... I think me and you may disagree on this and I'm, you know, and I'm, and I'm learning this stuff, you know, I'm learning more about this. So uh, funny last night, I told my son, I said, these, these two issues, I think I might disagree with Timothy Gordon. I want to ask him. And, my, and this was my son, Timothy. And he <laughs> says, well, I, I, I think, I think Timothy Gordon's right. And my wife's like, yeah, Timothy Gordon's definitely right. He's like, dad, what are you becoming a liberal? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm just looking at the clear scripture. And to me, it's clear in scripture. And um, so 
you got my son and my wife on your side, and you may be able to convince me, but here we go. Two issues. I'll give them to you one at a time. Let's do it. Okay, so first, um, 2018, I read that Pope Francis addressed uh, Italian bishops and said, let me, I want to get this quote right. Basically said, uh, blah, 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 blah. Anyone you suspect might be homosexual, you reject them. Better safe than sorry. We have to keep homosexuals out of the seminary. Okay? And that's clear in scripture. But then I thought, wouldn't it be easier to keep them out if we allow married priests like the Eastern Rite of the Catholic Church? Do you, but but I, I think I hear traditional guys like you and Michael Voris say, no, we, we have to keep them, you know, celibate and uh, not married. Am I correct? Am I, or am I misunderstanding? What oh, you absolutely. Guys absolutely. Yeah. That's just, just look at the parties. The um, Cardinal Walter Brandmiller in 2014, he's one of the four dubia Cardinals, only two of whom I'm sad to say live any longer. It's uh, Cardinal, Cardinal Burke and Cardinal Brandmuller. The other two have passed on Meisner and uh, Kafara all four very brave men and heroes of the church now who have opposed the Francis agenda, which is really the Sankt Gallen mafia agenda, the basically Northern European uh, archbishops and cardinals who wanted to give us a Pope Francis pontificate in, in 2005, nearly got their way, had been planning it for 30 years, want to change the church, essentially want to erase the church by making what remains of the church Protestant. And, um, Cardinal Braniel Miller in 2014 said, look, this, there's a four-step agenda of the Santa Gallen Mafia, and you're going to see Francis um, effectuated. Um, first step is com communion for the civilly divorced and remarried. And that's what Francis tended to in 2015 and then 20, April of 2016, right? So it's, it's weird when you see him, Bran Miller, call out the shots and then they proceed in this order. He says, next will be uh, priestly celibacy, you know, married priests and women deacons. I forget which order he said, but, but um, the, the Shamazon Synod of 14 months ago, 15 months ago is working on that. And then COVID happened, but there is, that's in the works right now. They're getting rid of priestly celibacy. And, so, but and then he says next will be intercommunion with the Lutherans. But okay, so why is that bad? Is that yeah? What I mean, yeah. Why is that bad? Wouldn't it help our cause of getting? Imagine if guys like you, uh, Michael, uh, Scott Hahn, Peter Crypt, if all these guys came in as priests, how strong our priesthood would be, and masculine would bring a masculine culture. Like like Father Pacquiao, I noticed he was on your show. He seems like a masculine priest, manly priest. If we had masculine, manly priests like that in the priesthood. Why wouldn't that be good? Um, what would uh, masculine priests would be good. And that's see celibacy is the crown is the crown gem of masculinity. The problem is you're associating celibacy, which is the, the cornerstone of Christ. The first priest is Christ Amen. and he was celibate and Amen. he took on a bride, you know, he's the bridegroom to a bride, the, the, the church, but he did so in a celibate way. So Christologically, even though this is a, Discipline, which can change. A, even in the fourth, fifth century of the church, it was the standard, but it wasn't the the um, it, it wasn't a no exception standard. It became a no exception standard in the Western, in the Latin church, 
around the eighth or ninth century, but it was the standard even by the third or fourth century because of that important Christological necessity. Christ was the, the bridegroom to the church, but in a celibate way. So his priests who stand in for him in personum Christi, when they consecrate a host, they are, um, they're supposed to be as close to Jesus as they can. Uh, we can go through the functional arguments and, and say, why couldn't a married man do this well? And I could make you a really strong practical argument. A married man could not be, I mean, I'd be a horrible priest, right? Um, under, also under that, under those auspices, the priesthood of the household breaks down. I'm called to be priest of the household. The priest is called to be the priest of the flock, right? So these are just kind of functional arguments. They're arguable, though I, I don't think it's a strong case the other way. But the Christological argument, the idea that priests are modeled after Christ and he was a celibate stand-in, a, a celibate groom to the bride of Christ and his stand-ins should be celibate, uh, follow, and were used very, very early on in tradition, as early as the third and fourth centuries. Um, so, that, that, I mean, that's kind of the argument. Also, priestly celibacy has always been, it's the great challenge, and it's the great mark of masculinity. So you're saying, why don't we have masculine priests? Yeah, a guy doesn't have to be having sex to be masculine. Unfortunately, that assumption is uh, kind of lingering residue of our sex revolution mindset, which really began a lot before the 1960s. It began with the Enlightenment. A, a priest should be very masculine. He should be someone who, if he got to get, you know, if he was allowed to get married, it would be a woman. But it's it's the one mark, along with a vow of obedience, that all priests make. I mean, obedience and celibacy. Now, if you go into a religious order, you might take a vow of poverty. Some of them even take a vow of silence. The reason all of the Latin orders take it is because it's so fundamental to the Christological component for what a priest is, a priest of Christ. And then functionally, there are really strong arguments for I, I would be a horrible priest. I mean, and, I, and I've seen that with pastors in uh, pastors' lives are a wreck. I see pastors getting divorced in Protestant churches because it is a big, you're right, it is a big strain on the family. Um, you know, you're getting calls in the middle of the night and uh, your wife's like, what the heck? You know, you just got home. So, yeah, right. I can see the functionality, too. But the Christological point that you made is is probably uh, the greatest argument. So I yeah, give you that principle and practice. But in, in principle is always where I like to argue because practice, anyone can kind of argue practicum. But seriously, practice, I would be a horrible priest because it's like. I just, man, I have six kids, which is a lot less than a lot of Catholic, you know, good Catholics. And it's like, there's just no, I, I just, I, I am maxed out right now doing what I'm doing. And um, the exigencies of a priest, uh, of a parish priest, he needs to be, have time for, to, you know, to pray Vespers after dinner. He needs to pray, have time to pray his hours. He can't be stressed out in some of the ways that a, a dad is. I mean, you can probably listen if it gets quiet in here. So my kids crying or <laughs> that's not that they're two different callings. And, yeah. and so the idea of uh, a marital vocation, which is the lower one and the priest, you know, the household priest means you tend, it, it, it also is a um, requirement of subsidiarity. The household priests of all the households, they tend to their kids in the detailed way. You know, it doesn't take a, it doesn't take a village, the way Hillary said. <laughs> I tend to my kids, I priest to them, and I tend and I priest to my wife. And then at, you know, at least once a week, 
the 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 pre you know the actual patriarchal uh, clerical priest comes in and he kind of gives us not only the sacraments because I can't do that even though Luther wanted all the men to be priests of all believers and they give us all the sacraments and they give us little tips at homily for how to how to tune up our priesting home so it's this kind of uh, I don't know deputization of the household priest by the clerical priest. And it works better. It's subsidiarity. It's a Catholic principle. It's why small government is better. It's why small is beautiful. You, you, you right. have the household priests and they're kind of sent out by the priests. The priests are sent out by the bishops. The bishops are in the direct lineal descendancy of the apostles. And I they, learned the meaning of uh, subsidiarity from this great book, by the way. <laughs> oh, thanks. <bro. laughs> and uh, it was very enlightening. Uh, but now yeah, you make, you make valid points. And I know St. Paul said, that, uh, you know, a soldier that has a family isn't going to be as effectual in a war as a soldier who doesn't have a family because you're going to be worried about your wife and kids rather than fighting the enemy. So, you know, yes. so, yeah. I, so I get that principle. I get that principle. And I, yeah, I guess um, I guess I just have a lot of Protestant residue left in my thinking. And again, I, I do have one other question. Uh, actually, it is deaconesses. So I know in uh, can I, wait, can, Rob, can I ask you a counter question? Yes, sure. Why do you, I know Rush Limbaugh, who I admire in a lot of ways, he makes the same point. You know, he he's kind of has some um, baked. I don't think it's super devout, but some baked in kind of waspish. Yeah, I think his I think his brother is a devout uh, Protestant. And he gets a lot of beliefs from his brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So, but I mean. So why would allowing priests to marry um, do anything to help, you know, man up, man up the priesthood or, 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 or quit having molested altar boys? I mean, think about I, that. Well, let's go down some of those avenues. So, so I would I would think the whole culture would begin to change. You would get, you know, people that are truly on fire for God that want to, you know, they want to be priests and they're manly. They're. Uh, they're not gay. And then you, you get a group of men in seminary and a majority of being heterosexual men, maybe it would make homosexuals uncomfortable about sneaking in. Cause now, you know, they got to sneak in. They're not allowed, but if they sneak in and there's a group of them, ha ha, they laugh, they got over. But there's a group of strong heterosexual men that truly love God and truly love the church. I think they're going to feel uncomfortable. I think the culture would change, you know, if, just imagine, you know, Peter Crift, uh, Scott Hahn, these guys, Francis Beckwith, you know, I, I keep naming all converts. Uh, these, these were the guys that led me back to the Catholic Church. That's why I named these guys. But imagine these guys studying the Bible together. It would just bring a whole different culture to a seminary, I would think. Yeah, I'm just not. So here's the thing. I think that they're, I don't think that the, uh, the gays have to sneak in. I think the straights have to sneak in now. But I don't think it has anything to do with what their declared active sexuality is, right? I mean, the, the presumption is what we want is a priesthood of men who, if they got to be married, they would marry women, right? So yeah. they're, they're trying to chasten down, batten down the hatches, chasten the impulses that they have to being a natural, natural vice, not an unnatural vice, to be attracted to pretty ladies. And that's that's who we want in the priesthood. And, and we want guys that have um mortified that function of their flesh, you know, that are like, well, man, I love pretty ladies. And I, I struggled initially, but I, I got over it because they are holier. So, right. We're, we're seeking after that holiness, but you, one has to accept a, 
Rush Limbaugh-like supposition that they're becoming less manly by becoming more chaste. Think about it. We don't apply this to boxers. You know, boxers are supposed to be chaste for uh, weeks before a match. They don't become less tough. They become more tough when they they chase themselves. So I think the problem is that essentially most, I don't want to say most, because that could, then that has... uh, uh, numerological implications, but I, I do think it's it's most uh, dioceses are giving all the indicia, all the signposts of you have to sneak in if you're straight. Wow. The majority assumption is you're gay. I I don't think I mean they're not nominally allowed to be sexually active with women or men once they get into the priesthood, and so I think the problem is we're basically giving all the indicia that. <laughs> To be a Catholic priest, you really wink and a nod. You should be like, uh, you know, well, you should be gay. And, wow. and so I think that has nothing to do with whether or not the straight men, meaning straight impulses, are actively, uh, you know, sexually active or not. The, the straight ones will be straight and they'll be more masculine if they're, if they're chaste and celibate. They'll be masculine in a straight way if they were allowed to marry women but they would be less holy and they'd be less tough for the fight i think so i i think it's a in in torts we would say you're arguing it's a uh design flaw i'm arguing it's a manufactured flaw i think it has nothing to do with whether the straight men are actually um allowed to be sexually active i mean think about it what you're what you're insinuating what rush is insinuating is that you have a bunch of straight men that are in there like a prison system that are going gay. That's not what's happening. What's happening is, and we know this through church militants reporting because, and, and through what happened at St. Gallen, we're learning it more and more and more there in what Bella Dodd said and what the communist party um, inside and outside of Stalinist USSR said, they let's get the Catholic church to openly recruit gays to the priesthood to corrupt it. That's what they're doing. They're not corrupting the priesthood by priestly celibacy, which is the bimillennial tradition. And um, and then let's just take those straight guys and turn them gay. I don't even believe that really happens. So so you see the difference. It's it's a manufacturer versus a design. Yeah, I don't think that can happen. I'm just saying it would attract more men who are faithful to the teachings of the church. That's that's what I was thinking. I wasn't thinking they're getting in there and converting them to their lifestyle i don't think that's even possible but um so what about the argument that there's not enough priests you know there's people that go a year without getting the eucharist what would you say to that argument i'm glad you brought that up um (laughs) so the german bishops conference is now petitioning very hard to implement all of these post amazon synod uh changes because of the October 2019 synod. Dig this, okay? A couple, a couple components to this argument. One, one, they said that this is a problem that's unique to the Amazon. At the time I was saying, I think I was still making shows with Taylor Marshall. We were both saying, Amazon what? This is like a really, really, really unique idiosyncratic area of the world that has its own demands. And they were saying that too. So what we predicted at the time was they're going to universalize this very particular set, peculiar set of circumstances in a way that makes no sense to the rest of the world. And we've seen that, 
We saw that with uh, Carita Amazonia, and we've seen that with the way that Francis seems to be um, reifying uh, the dictates of Carita Amazonia. And we see that with the German bishops conference asking for basically female priests. What, what does this have to do with the Amazonian region? They have their own needs. They can't, you know, they can't get a couple of miles to mass. So they can't get Eucharist. So they need females. Rahm Emanuel said, you know, never let a good disaster or in this case, hardship go to waste in the law. We just call it hollow out principle. You just get one exception you hollow out the little hole, you poke a hole with a, a tip of a pen, soon you can get your whole hand through. This is how they got communion in the hand in 1977. We we know this is what liberals do. Point number two, and then that's all they're doing. Point number two is think of what's happening with what we call the beer bug. Uh, you know, the uh the little the little virus uh of the last year and three months. They're claiming they're shutting down parishes. Yeah, that's that's not letting a crisis go to waste for sure, right there. That's a clear Rahm Emanuel move. You know, in a whole bunch of ways. I don't want to get your channel taken off. That's why I codify <laughs> the language. But all I'm going to say, I'm not. This isn't so much a COVID point as a, you know, uh, you know, female deacon and and married priest point. We don't even. They're closing down parishes in every diocese. We need less priests, not more, according to what they're saying, the dictates and the needs and the exigencies of the beer bug are, right? We don't need more priests. We need less. And also, you know, I mean, I, we, people all know how I feel about that. Obviously, we need to get back to church and we never should have been taken out of churches. But um, I'm just saying, given that most of the bishops won't allow us to go back to church in a fully regular way, that also destroys, and I, I believe most of the liberals are uh, the bishops are liberal sensitive and liberal sympathetic. That destroys their argument, their Rahm Emanuel like argument. Oh, we we have there's so much need for so many priests. No, there's not. You're having a bunch of priests, kind of uh, I forget what they call it. They're they're like laying fallow, right? When they can't, when you have firefighters that have no fires to fight, so they have too many priests right now, according to COVID nineteen. So it, it goes the other way. They, they're trying to use the same catastrophe for two of their different uh, darkling ends. And it, it doesn't work if we have any, any memory whatsoever. So it's just, it's just a pure sham. So I, like I said, I guess I, got, I'm, I have to filter things like naturally comes from my Bible alone. So I see it in the scripture. And this is why I like to talk to men like you to get the Catholic tradition, the sacred tradition, and the teachings of the church for 2,000 years. And then the, the other verse, I, you actually brought it up, the other verse that I see so clearly, uh, I know 1 Timothy chapter 2, chapter 12, St. Paul says, I uh, permit no women to teach men. And right. we know the apostles were all men. So right. there's no doubt that that is a doctrine that cannot change. Priests must be men. However, St. Paul mentions a deaconess in uh, Romans 16.1, uh, deaconess named Phoebe, just kind of mentions her. Right. So there, there were deaconesses, female deacons. So could it be that during the apostles' time, they had women deacon that didn't do everything men deacons do? Like they didn't teach, they didn't preach, but maybe they assisted uh, the apostles. Could that could that be possible? I mean, based on Bible alone, I see deaconesses. But no. based on church history and tradition, what do you say? Based on church history, the answer is a solid no. 
Okay. Uh, Phoebe and Susanna and Joanna and the other of the deaconesses, uh, they, they were actually just helpers. It was lowercase d. The Greek word for deacon simply means like dikonoia or something. It simply means helper. And okay. what all they did was they distributed food to widows in Christian communities. So okay. they were they were not, it, it's an equivocal sense of the term, as Aristotle or St. Thomas would say. It's an equivocal sense. It was not the third part of the ministerial, you know, episcopate, you know, bishops being first, priests being second, deacons being third. It is not ordination. And it did not serve the functions concomitant with, the, you know, the male-female version of the third part of ordination. So it was just totally totally distinct. Those deacons might have been, it's like, um, you know, Aristotle talks about what is the equivocal use of a term. You don't, you would not go down to the river nearest your house. I don't know if you're still in, uh, you're still in Jersey, right? No, I'm in Florida now. I'm right by oh, the you're, lake. Oh, you're in Florida. Right by a lake. I moved to a red state, just like you. <laughs> you're not going to go down to the bank of a lake and deposit your money and say, oh, I want to put my money in just because of the bank, the, the bank of a river or lake is a wholly equivocal usage from a bank where you put your money. You're, you're literally talking about, um, you know, deacon as used in the New Testament. That's a good Susanna, point. Joanna, Phoebe. They are it's literally like bank of a river versus, you know, bank where you store your money is what we call capital D deacon where it's an ordination. And, and there is no chance of that because also from scripture, it's very, very clear. St. Paul says it all over the epistles. There is only one ordination with distinctions of degree. There aren't three kinds of ordination, bishop, priest, mm. uh, uh, deacon. There's just one with different degrees of it. And, and so there could never be uh, a female bishop or priest. We all, we all know that. Therefore, there could never be a, a female deacon that's ordained as such. So, so you just you just destroyed thing. a Bible alone argument without me even that wasn't even my attention, but but yeah, that shows you that Bible alone just can't stand. You need the other two legs, like you said, for the Bible to stand. So yeah, but I mean, how would it even work? Because one of the, uh, the deacons do uh, help to uh, un unpack uh, liturgical meaning of Scripture, right? I mean, think about it. That's part of their function. So. Uh, how how would a woman even do the concomitant functions of a male deacon? Uh, now, of course, most Novus Ordo parishes have the women up there reading the scripture, but that's really what they mean by teaching. St. Paul would include that in teaching. So just, just even by scripture alone, I, I think you just, it's just a no, it's a solid no. Okay. So you just brought me to another question of one of my uh, viewers. Uh, she said, is, let me, let me, so I can't even read my own scribble here, but I can't find it. But basically she asked, I'll, I'll paraphrase it. If you're watching, I apologize if I messed up your question. But basically her question was, is it inherently evil to take communion in the hand? She said when she came back to the Catholic Church, she grew up uh, taking it on the tongue. But when she came back, she went to a, a Novus Ordo church and myself too. When I came back that, you know, I became a Catholic because I realized Christ established a Catholic church and gave the Catholic church authority. So I accepted that authority when I went through my RCIA, even though they 
put me through like an express RCIA. It's a different story, but um, what they taught me was now we take it in the hand. And, I, and I'll, I'll tell you up front, that's all I've known since I've been back to the Catholic church. When I was a kid, you know, last time I took communion was probably second grade, third grade. And when I came back, you know, six years ago, that's how I was taught. And um, this viewer of mine, subscriber, uh, is thinking, okay, her name is JJ. Is it a sin? Okay, this is her question. My son found it for me. Is it a sin or inherently wrong to receive communion in the hand? So that, that's for her and me. Yeah, it, um, that's, that's one of those difficult disciplinary questions when, you, when one struggles to give a really precise answer. I, I take a shortcut there because it's, it's that, you know, we have basically there's discipline, which can change. You know, one Pope can order all the clerics in the world to wear the tonsure one day. And if he dies, the next Pope, the next day can say, no, don't do it. And it's basically, he just has universal jurisdiction. And so there's no contradiction in the fact that one Pope says, don't the next Pope says, I don't, you know, do. Then there's doctrine, which really can't change. And then there's dogma, which is just, crystal clear, can't change the highest level. It gets tricky when you're asking if discipline are clearly tacky and even, um, I would say, blasphemous discipline, like communion in the hand, whether or not that discipline contains an um, intrinsic evil. Most, most, um, most Catholics, even, even semi-knowledgeable ones, don't understand what a strong statement it is to say that um, thus and such is an intrinsic evil. So the answer is no, it's not an intrinsic evil, but I would say that it's probably always wrong. Something can be always wrong without being intrinsically evil. And, you know, we don't have to go into the philosophy of why, but, um, you know, it's a proper accident that is pretty much always evil to take it in your hand. So don't do it, even though it's no, it's not an intrinsic evil. The church wouldn't have the power to grant that even disciplinarily if it was, I would not do it. Uh, and the rest of the answer as to parsing out the, the distinction within a distinction I made is, is quite boring, but I would say, don't ever do it. You know, even if you're at a Novus Ordo parish, just get down on your knees and um, take it on the tongue because in the 1977 letter, uh, maybe 76, the, 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 which is, which is in the AAS um, codified by the CDF, it says it you know it will never be touched. The the first way to receive communion on the tongue in in this dispensatory power, they are not um, abrogating the way which will continue forever. They're really clear, clear about it. That um, no bishop even usually the bishops can do what they want, but this is the universal jurisdiction of the pope, who doesn't often tell the bishops who basically do whatever they want. They're basically sovereigns, except when the pope tells them. You're not allowed to disrupt this. Now, Pope, Fra Pope Francis is making that unclear. But um, one time, a, an old you know, Vatican II dinosaur priest at a Novus Ordo parish told my wife not to take it on the mouth, and she didn't know what to do. So I went in, and I got the letter, and I showed him right after Mass. And uh, we, had, we had unkindly, um, ungentle words for one another, but th that's just the, the answer. So I would never do it unless I don't know why the dispensation was given in the first place. If you're a, if you're a handicap, it seems like it would be easier to have the priest put it on your tongue anyway, but it, uh, 
whatever the reason is, unless you have that particular need, which basically none of us do, you know, less than 1% of us do, don't do it, take it on the tongue. And uh, the rest of it's kind of boring. Uh, do they, so do they feel that it was okay to change it because it's a litur- liturgical thing? It's not a, like a doctrine or a dogma, it's a liturgical, it would be like in the realm of discipline. Is that what I'm understanding? Is that why they thought it was okay? Well, it's a discipline. I, I would. We're, we're opening a whole can of worms. I think a lot of the disciplines between that were reified between 1965 and 1977, in those 12 years, the disciplines, including basically the new mass itself, uh, I, I would say if we were to analyze what they are metaphysically, these the new mass, a lot of the new uh, liturgical forms in the mass, what are they metaphysically? If we did so by looking at the intention, I think it would be very darkling. Luckily, I'm not an intentionalist. I'm a textualist. And so we look at the text and it, it's technically dispensatorily okay for them to say that, even if the, the motive, I think, is pretty much quite dark. Without being much of a conspiracy theorist, I guess I'm some, uh, it's it's quite obvious that that most of the muscle of the episcopate that were behind such dispensations really are just trying to Protestantize the Eucharist, which is to say, make it not the source and summit of the faith and to make, uh, to render unbelievable the idea that of the real presence, which is, you know, you, you see a bunch of, uh, you know, Susan from the parish councils up there handling the Eucharist, like it were a Snickers bar or something, which they're waiting to get to after mass. And, uh, and you, you just can't believe, I'm talking about a six, seven, eight-year-old. You see that subliminally, you just can't believe this is the source and the th- sum of the faith, the real presence of Jesus. And I, I think that's why they did it. But who cares? Just don't, you know, unless you really need to, it's, this is a, it's not like it's, I'm sa- telling you, you got to do 150 push-ups at one sitting before you take the Eucharist. Some people don't have that capacity. I'm, I'm telling you, just let the priest put it on your mouth. Everyone can do that. Yeah. Good point. So uh, we're going to be closing here in a minute. I just want to ask you, is this, I, I think this is a quote by St. Augustine. And, um, and when I was a Protestant, I actually used this and other Protestant pastors would use this. Because uh, I guess uh, Augustine was so far before the Reformation, we assumed he would have been a Protestant. So it was okay to quote him. <laughs> but uh, the quote goes like this, in the essentials, there must be unity non-essentials, liberty, all things charity. I'm sure you heard that quote. Mm-hmm. So if someone would argue that that wasn't an essential of the faith, whether you take it on the hand or take it on the tongue, would you disagree with that? That's an essential where there must be unity? Well, no. I mean, that's why no discipline could really constitute um, I mean, it's not one of the precepts of the church, right? It's not one of the four marks of the church. And if even wicked churchmen who run the episcopate say that that it can be done, it can be done, then you get into this complex supernatural versus natural kind of thing, which which has to do with like at what level of being ordered or allowed to do evil by the clerical patriarchy. You know, basically the bishops and their priests, would it excuse us from doing something evil? And that gets that's above my pay grade. I would just say 
you do have that 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 dispensation says you can never have the right to take it on the tongue taken away. So simplify. I like to do things. The difference between me and a bunch of trads is I like to do things the easy way when I can. A lot of trads like to give the tradiest answer. I, I mean, I'm with them on this. Just take it on the mouth because it's easy. I'm not saying it's one of the four marks of the church or one of the precepts of the church or that you're no longer Catholic if you've ever taken it on the hand. That would be ridiculous. Um, you're no longer Catholic if you don't believe in one of the four marks of the church or the precepts of the church or the Apostles' Creed or something like that, or that you believe there's, you know, the, the time to make the donuts guy is the fourth person of the, the Trinity or something. Then you're not, you're not Catholic. But um, it's, it's a matter of discipline that has a pretty obviously darkling provenance. And so don't indulge it. So let me, I'm going to, I said that was the last question, but I got to ask you one more question. So when I came back to the Catholic church, one of the things that attracted me and brought me back was their claim that Christ established it and that they're infallible in their teachings of the doctrines and dogmas of the faith, of faith and morals, I guess. Yeah. So Again, once I accepted the authority of the church that they're infallible, I accepted what I was taught about it being put on the hand. So because it's not a dogma or a doctrine, you could say, you're saying the church made a, could have made a mistake. If it was a dogma or doc, if it was doctrine, the church could not make that mistake because the church is infallible. But because it's a discipline, the church may have made a church, you're saying made a mistake. That, no, that, I'm saying I'm saying because it's a discipline, it's undefined as either a truth or an error. Okay. Because it's a discipline, we could say we might say something like the the Novus Ordo New Mass and a bunch of its liturgical forms, like communion on the hand, is tacky. And it, it, see, that way I restrict myself to the domain of subjective assessment, and it's subjective assessment that I think all people of uh, sound mind would tend to agree with if we're being really critical, but it's not the domain of error or non-error. There's, you can't even define error in the realm of discipline. I mean, okay. look at the statistics. What did the new mass do? Uh, sociologically, you know, sociologically, the new mass seems to have had a, a on mass subjective effect. Sorry about that. That's fine. Of, uh, Oh, sound. I, had five. I got nine grandkids. I love it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's driven a lot of people from mass. That doesn't mean it's wrong the same way it would be wrong to say that there are four persons in the Trinity or that there can be female priests, which would actually be wrong. That would be error. To say, to, to, they can make a new mass tomorrow if they do it with the authentic uh, magisterium under the auspices of the authentic. They could make one twice as bad as I think most Novus Ordo masses are. And that wouldn't be error. That would just be really tacky in the eyes of everyone who's not insane. So, so discipline just doesn't submit itself to the kind of determinations, error or non-error that, that uh, doctrine and dogma do. It's that's, that's more the, the answer, I think. Well, man, I appreciate you. I feel like I was in a class uh, with a great teacher, and I'm sure my viewers got a lot of stuff uh, answered. I mean, I, I think you answered every question that was sent to me. So I really appreciate you, Timothy. Uh, you. If there's anything you want to say to close, uh, you know. No, I just, uh, 
Hey, I'd, I'd love to tell your audience. I do. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be on. I really, really do enjoy having you. Um, a couple things. One, just a couple plugs. One, sure, I am kind of a teacher by nature is what I've done. Now my modality has changed. Now I'm teaching classes on Zoom. If you go to timothyjgordon.com and click enroll, we're offering a new church history class, uh, it, open enrollment now on Zoom, live taught by me once a week. It'll be on Thursday evenings. Uh, church history class, the class was packed out, I think near 200 the first time, so we couldn't take any more in the fall. We're doing another enrollment and it's really kind of true European history class and you'll learn a bunch of the stuff we're talking about. We just go through all 2000 years of the church and a lot of the councils. People love it. It's a lot of fun. Now, that sounds yeah. really, really interesting. It really does. Yeah, thanks. The other one we're opening up in April where enrollment's now available is uh, rules for retrogrades class on on uh, the 40, 40 rules. That's just that's more for fun class. That's only 10 weeks. We'll do four rules a week. Um, I've never run that one before, but I am a teacher by nature and I, I do appreciate doing it. The other thing that both of both you and I plug on our channels is real estate for life. Thank you. <laughs> they they yeah. would have been texting me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you got it, yeah, brother. Definitely. Uh, if you're wanting to buy or sell a house, go to realestateforlife.org and tell them uh, Timothy Gordon or Blue Collar Catholic sent you. Either one, uh, it's all going to the same uh, family of God. Amen. I, I mean, what I the way I've been plugging it. Sorry, I wasn't trying to tell you. No, no, good. I just know you also plug them. And the, the reason that... Um, I get calls from from uh, Real Estate for Life and, and our mutual buddy over there. I won't use his name. He'll say, I'm getting record numbers from you. What's yourself? Cool. And he watched myself. Myself for them is like, look, I'm all about, you know, at the level of poli sci, republics have to be small geographically. If you want to keep small government, you have to be small geographically. A continent-sized republic which is what we claim to have is a contradiction in terms. So all the problems follow from there. And so I've been telling people, look, pick out one of a handful, maybe two handfuls of the red states and let's make them blood red. If you're in a blue state and I'm not preaching to you, but I guess I should be Rob. If you're in a blue <laughs> state, like I was in California, you are, or you were. I were. I, I'm were. sorry, solid red. Don't believe the purple lies. It's it's red. No, 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 it's red. I keep I keep thinking New Jersey, bro. I, I'm sorry. So yeah, accent, I can't use it. <laughs> no, you, you did good. Florida is one of the places I would want to be. I love it. Or in Mississippi. So my whole point is just this: we need to pick not not all of the red states. We got to make them blood red. Ten of them. Pick whichever one you think is most beautiful. For me, Mississippi, I just think is beautiful because I love the forest. And it's super low house prices. Just pick one and get there in the next six to 12 months. Amen. And I've been saying this for like a year. And it's also kind of the, the, the unplayed note in Catholic Republic. So people associate this with me, balkanization, you know, nullification, whatever. Uh, there's even another, another word in there like, you know, it involves 1776 was a secession movement. Well, you can't do that until everyone's in the same place who's like-minded. That's what a res publica is, a public thing we all know and treasure, which is Christianity at the very least, uh, even, even with our good Protestant brother. So get to a red state. And if you're going to do so, do so by contacting Real Estate for Life. That's what I've been telling people. It seems Man. to be working because 
it's legit. You got to get out of blue states. Yeah, it's definitely legit. I actually have a, a friend of mine who's a realtor that uh, is a real estate for life realtor. And uh, it's definitely legit. Uh, for some reason, I don't see your face anymore. I hear you loud and clear, but I don't know if my viewers uh, yeah, yeah. see who I see. I just see black. So, oh, you're back. I you're back now. So, uh, yeah. And, and I just want to say this. I got a pet peeve. I'll just give you an example. One guy I was talking from Brooklyn. I worked when I was a milkman working at Borden and he, he had a carry permit. It's so easy to get a carry permit. Now half the people down here got carry permits. Uh, he loves going to shoot. And uh, we're talking about Florida. He goes, oh, yeah, I love Florida. He said, you know, New York, you know, it's so hard to get a gun. And I was like, yeah, forget about that. It's so hard to get a house, you know, taxes. Oh yeah. And then like, uh, in the next breath, we're talking about the election. He's like, oh, I hate Trump. I'm like, you're going to vote for Biden? <laughs> I'm like, dude, don't tell me you didn't vote for DeSantis. If you're coming down here to Florida and you're voting Democrat, please go back to New York. So if you're going to vote for the same people that run the blue states, please stay in the blue states and don't right. mess up what we got there. Right. So. Yeah. yeah. Invite only. Invite only. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. hey, man, it was great talking to you. I really enjoy uh, and you are a great teacher. You are, you are a gifted teacher. And that's why I thought it'd be great to ask you a bunch of theological questions. I noticed that the first time I uh, spoke to you, you definitely have a gift for teaching. So uh, keep using it, man. Thank you, brother. And, and God bless your work. And I want to have you on my show, too. We got to we got to collaborate more. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Seven, yeah. Nine. I think, you know, I was th I was telling somebody the other day, I said, you remember that uh, the number one most uh downloaded podcast was you know it was a secular show but it was a uh, dr drew and adam carolla and it was one really educated guy and one blue collar guy and i said that's me and timothy <laughs> but we're on the same page and your common sense and you're down to earth you're not you know you know uh all la di da you know but academic you know, weenie yeah it, yeah <laughs> they're their yeah. own breed man yeah no I, yeah i could see you going in the in the ring you know boxing a few rounds yeah hey, you want to spar i, I could see that yeah heck yeah yeah no, no. Don't, don't count me in with those guys i just want no, i don't i don't not at all even <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, like even you, someone man. who knows you told me you're not one of those guys so yeah but we'll leave his name out of it but anyway you have a great night you too bro. Uh, god bless and uh keep in touch okay brother Tell your, tell your son, the tech man, hi for me, and thanks. All right. Hey, Nick. Say hi to Tim. This is Nick. Hey, Mr. Gordon. How are you doing? Good. How are you, bro? <laughs> Good. Good yeah. listening to you. I was here the whole time. Oh, cool. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I said, yeah, if something goes wrong, I'll be like, Nick. <laughs> I said, either that, I'll be like, hey, Tim, do you know what to do? <laughs> <laughs> right. Or, or, or people. People. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. I haven't used that one yet. That's a good one. All right. Hey, well, God bless, and I'll uh, talk to you soon, brother. Thanks a million. Peace. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women,